Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, Corey Ten Boom uh, was a Dutch Christian whose family uh, was involved in rescuing Jews uh, during the Nazi occupation in Holland. Uh, she and her family were eventually arrested and put into prison. And while imprisoned, both Corey's father and sister died. Uh, but she survived. And later on in her life, she became a prominent speaker and author. Uh, and I want to open up our series called Unforgivable. Uh, I want to tell you and read part of her story. Uh, it was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth that they needed to hear most in this bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When, our, when we confess our sin, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. And even though I can't find a scripture to prove it, I believe that God places a sign out there that says, no fishing allowed. <laughs> the solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their things, and then in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him. Working his way forward against the others, one moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next, the blue uniform and the wizard hat with a skull and crossbones. And it came back to me in a rush, the huge room with all of its harsh to overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp between the parchment of skin, and Betsy, how thin you were. The place was Ravensbrook. And the man was, that was making his way forward had been the guard, one of the most cruel guards. And now he was in front of me with his hand thrust out. A fine message. How good it is to know that, as you say, all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your, in your talk. I was a, uh, he was saying, I was a guard there. No, he certainly did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian, and I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. And so again, his hand came out. Will you forgive me? I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again to be forgiven, and yet I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow and terrible death simply for the asking? 
It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing that I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. For since the end of the war, I had come home in uh, in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. And those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what their physical scars. But those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one outstretched to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, It raced down my arm and then sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing me tears to tears. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all of my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized it was not my love for I had tried and I did not have the power. It was only the power of the Holy Spirit as it's told in Romans 5, verse five. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. Uh, This is Christianity at its finest. If you take the message of forgiveness out of Christianity, all you have left is a skeleton of a religion Because forgiveness lies right at the center and at the heart of this faith that we call Christianity. I wonder though if we really understand this central message because we live with questions about forgiveness, don't we? Questions like, does forgiveness have limits? Or is it always right to forgive? And how do we forgive? those who have so deeply wronged and hurt us. You see, it's rather nice to believe in forgiveness as a principle, but it's much harder to live out the call to forgive those who have wronged us. And so over the next three to four weeks, we're gonna be exploring forgiveness. Uh, We talk a lot around here about living out the kingdom of God and proclaiming the reality of the kingdom of Christ. And I'm utterly convinced that one of the most powerful witnesses to the kingdom is the practice of forgiveness. And so I invite you, I won't ask you to stand for the reading of God's word today because I wanna read the whole thing in its context, but I'm gonna be reading from Luke chapter 23 and you can just listen, you can follow along. Uh, I believe it'll also be up on the screens, but let's hear God's word together today out of Luke chapter 23. It says this, this is right toward, we're jumping into the story right toward the end of Jesus' life. It says this, then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. 
And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Messiah, a king. And so Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man, but yet the crowd insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea with his teaching. He started in Galilee and he's come all the way over here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. For he wanted, he had heard about him and had hoped they, to see him perform a sign of some sort. Now he asked him many questions, but Jesus gave no answer. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. And then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him and then dressed him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. Now that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. And before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion, and I have examined him in your presence. I have found no basis for your charges against him, and neither has Herod, so he sent him back to us, as you can see, for he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Now Barabbas had been thrown into prison for insurrection in the city and also for murder. Now wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them once again, and, but they just kept on shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Now for the third time he spoke to them, why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty, therefore I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. And so Pilate decided to grant them their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and for murder, the one that they had asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Now, as the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in the country, and put the cross on him, and they made him carry it behind Jesus. And a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that have never bore and the breasts that have never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the trees are green, what will happen when it is dry? Now, two other men, both criminals, were also laid out, uh, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. The story, the Christian story, goes something like this. God created the world and called it good. And all of creation lived in perfect harmony with God and with one another. 
under the loving rule of God the Creator. But it wasn't long before we rebelled against God. And in our rebellion, we essentially said, we want to be our own rulers. We want to define good and evil on our own terms. And so that's exactly what we did. And we've been trying to rule ourselves ever since. And it turns out, if you look throughout history, if you look at the news that came out yesterday, this week, last month, it doesn't matter. It turns out that we aren't, we aren't very good at ruling ourselves. You see, from the earliest part of the story, we've been killing each other. First Cain killed Abel, and then violence escalated so much that by the time of Noah, the whole world was filled with violence. Each act of violence robbing the humanity of the other and breaking the heart of God. For thousands of years, the world has been caught up in tit-for-tat, violence, and revenge. This is the way, in fact, the empires are run. Do violence against us or threaten us, and we'll do greater violence against you. This is often how our own lives, though, are also managed. Isn't it true that our own lives are run just like the empire Harm me and I'll do or at least wish harm upon you. You see, it seems like from almost the very beginning of the story, we've been operating this way. And even as we read this story, this this moving, this compelling story of Jesus, we see it play out right here in this narrative. You see, Jesus' only crime was threatening the powers that be by offering people a different way of life. But that different way of life threatened the powers that be because it was a way of life totally foreign to them and they felt threatened. This was Jesus' only crime. In fact, he had done no harm at all to anyone except to upset positions of power by showing people a more beautiful way. And now in the story, the principalities and powers are ready to kill him and I invite you to tune in a little bit to the story. I tried to do it and bring this out in my reading, but I want to make it more explicit. Let's tune in to the, to the level of betrayal that Jesus faces even in these last few moments of his life. The crowd gathers, the assembly, and they say their, their number one claim, their initial complaint, is that this man is disrupting the nation. His teachings are throwing the status quo off kilter. His kindness, his forgiveness uh, of others, his grace, it's like every time he does the right and good thing, he becomes a more and more an enemy of the state. And so here Jesus is proclaiming the reality of the kingdom of God, the forgiveness of sins, the grace of God, all of these good things. He's saying, I'm building up another kingdom that, but that operates in this way to which all the kingdoms of the world said, uh-uh, <laughs> And even the people used to the status quo of how things are supposed to go rise up against Jesus and says, this man is threatening the status quo. He's disrupting our nation. And then did you notice? Did you notice that they take his own words and churn them, spin them, misquote them just enough to bring something against him? They misquote him. They say, Jesus says that we shouldn't pay our taxes to Caesar, but Jesus never said that. 
What Jesus said is render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar and render unto God what belongs to God. And that wasn't just about where your money goes. It was a lot about an allegiance of our heart. But he never said, don't pay your taxes to Caesar. So they misquote him. And then Herod was looking forward to seeing him, but only to be entertained by signs and wonders. You see, to Herod, Jesus of Nazareth was really nothing but a spectacle to be observed and then dismissed. And so when he is finally in the presence of Jesus, the one who can impress him with a show, and Jesus refuses to oblige, he is mocked and dressed in a robe. Of course, the irony here is that Jesus really is a king, but he's a totally different kind of king. And then did you notice this in verse 12? Two state-sponsored enemies at war with one another, Herod and Pilate, enemies, state workers at war with one another. Did you catch this? They are brought together and made friends because now they have a common enemy in Jesus. And then, of course, this whole thing culminates in the crowds shouting, crucify him, crucify him, preferring that someone guilty of murder be released from prison so that Jesus could be killed. I think a lot of times when we look at the cross of Christ, we look at it in isolation. We look at it as, as a singular event. And certainly it is a, an event in history. But we often don't consider the context around it. And if we don't consider the context around it, we lose the power of Jesus' words when he then says, hanging on the cross, he says these powerful, world-altering words. Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they are doing. You see, this becomes sort of like glib and plight and empty if we don't recognize all the betrayal that Jesus had faced and all the ways and all the, all the betrayal that Jesus had faced, even in those last few moments. And yet here's Jesus with these words, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. You see, these words demonstrate for us the true nature of forgiveness. If we're going to understand forgiveness, we have to begin to see it as absorbing the blow of sin and then refusing to take it out on the other. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is taking the blow, absorbing the sin, absorbing the loss or the harm. Because here it is, forgiveness is deciding to end the cycle of revenge and violence. This is so critical to the story of the gospel. If God is just the person with the biggest means of violence, then nothing has changed. But if God has violence and harm and sin brought against him, and then on the cross says, Father, forgive them, but they don't know what they're doing thus ending the cycle of revenge, that now the world has changed forever. Amen? Pastor and author Brian Zahn says this in his book, Unconditional. He says, forgiveness is the choice to resist responding to evil with evil, to resist responding to hate with hate, 
To resist responding to violence with violence. To resist responding to malice with malice. If we're going to understand forgiveness, we have to understand forgiveness as absorbing a harm, loss, sin, a blow, or pain. And this is, in fact, precisely what Jesus does on the cross. He absorbs the sin of humanity upon himself, and it does kill him. But by absorbing the sin and violence and not responding with sin and violence, but rather by responding with love and forgiveness, what he does is he exposes the ugliness of the sin. Did you catch that? That part of what the cross is all about is not some just legal transaction between God the Father and God the Son. In fact, I, I'll say later we need to like begin thinking completely outside of that realm, but part of what is going on is that as people are bringing this violence and this sin against Jesus and him responding with love and forgiveness, what it does is it exposes the ugliness of the sin. And it says that this system is so broken and systemic sin is so real that it would kill an innocent man and that it would exchange a, a murderer for someone who has done nothing but show love and grace. And so Jesus, in dying on the cross, absorbs our sin but also exposes the ugliness of sin because you, you, if you live in cycles of revenge and violence, you often just begin to think that's the way the world works and you forget how ugly it actually is. It's like a fish saying, what's water? <laughs> right? But Jesus exposes the ugliness of the sin by responding not with more sin and violence, but by responding with love and forgiveness. So he responds to violence and sin with forgiveness, therefore exposing the ugliness of sin and showing humanity a better way. He commits his spirit to the Father and then he dies and now the full weight of sin has been borne upon himself. He has entered into total solidarity with humanity even unto death. And then three days later he is raised from the dead, defeating the power of death so that humanity is now free to live in the ways of his kingdom by the power of his spirit that is poured out on all who will call upon his name. Amen? So if we are going to forgive, understand forgiveness, we must learn to see it as absorbing the blow and refusing to take it out on another to end, in order to end the cycle of revenge and violence. You might say it this way. Forgiveness is giving up your right to get even. Right? Harm comes against you. And everyone around you will say, you have every right to get even. Forgiveness is giving up your right to get even. That's forgiveness. But there is a problem. <laughs> we don't always understand it this way, do we? 
We don't always understand forgiveness in these terms because guess what? It is right and it is good for us to take our cues of forgiveness from the cross of Christ. But for many of us, the only way we've understood the cross of Jesus Christ is this, that God was so angry at us and at our sin that he caused Jesus to pay the penalty of our sin, which is death. And so Jesus died instead of you. Or you could also say it this way, that Jesus took the beating and the punishment that you deserved and therefore satisfied the wrath of God against you and your sin. Hey, I'd be a pretty good angry preacher. (laughs) Some of you are like, you are an angry preacher. (laughs) Right? For some of us, that's the only way we've ever understood the cross is that Jesus took the beating that you deserved and the punishment that you deserved and now it satisfied the wrath of God against you and your sins so now God is finally free to forgive you. Let's ask a really important and honest question. With that understanding of the cross, has God actually forgiven sin? And before I try to answer that question, I want, I want, I want to tell you something. In your journey of faith, if you are really leaning in you will come across questions that will shake you. And when, you're, when your belief system is shaken, you are tempted to equate the certainty of your belief to faith. And I would want to say that that is not the case. That faith is not equal to certainty of belief. That it is good and it is right and it is healthy to ask important, hard questions about what we believe. Because that will lead us to a depth of faith that we could not get to otherwise. So some of you might say, how can you dare ask that question? I would say, how can we dare not? It is important to ask really important questions. With this understanding of the cross, has God actually forgiven sin? And if we take the understanding of forgiveness that we've hopefully learned, and if we are willing to be honest, then the answer is no. For many of us, the only way we've understood the cross is that God diverted the payment or God diverted the punishment of sin to Christ instead of us. And in this scenario, God hasn't absorbed anything, but rather God has been paid off by punishing Christ instead of you. God the Father has been been dealt the debt that was owed him, right? Often we hear it in terms of of a financial thing, that we owe a debt to God and it'll never be repaid, but thanks be to God, Jesus paid it on our behalf. And if that is the case, then God hasn't forgiven any debt. It was just paid by someone else, right? And so if we're really, really honest, then we need to say that with this understanding of the cross, God hasn't actually forgiven sin, And so a better way to think about the cross is that God in Christ, God, the the God, the Father and God, the Son are not somehow separated or or, uh, estranged from one another at the cross, but rather in Christ, God experiences the pain of absorbing the loss and sin. And that God in Christ experiences what it is like to be God forsaken. And so all the moments that you might say in your life, God, where are you? God himself knows what that is like. 
You see, the incarnation and the cross and the, and the death of Christ are all about God entering into radical solidarity with humanity. It isn't about the Trinity being separated. It isn't about, it is about God the Father being pitted against God the Son. And so then one is beating up on the other. It isn't any of that. It's God in Christ absorbing the blow of personal sin, of systemic sin, of actual violence. And rather than responding with further violence, responding with love and forgiveness. Let me ask you an honest question. Isn't this far more beautiful and far more compelling? I think so. This is the God that we serve. Let me sum it up this way. The cross isn't what God does to Christ so that he can forgive. The cross is what God does in Christ as he forgives. Now what does all of this mean then? Well, the first thing that I think that we can take from this is when we understand that God in Christ has absorbed the sin of humanity and offers forgiveness, real forgiveness, genuine forgiveness, then we can finally begin to realize that God's fundamental orientation toward you is love. And I believe that's a word for someone today. That God is not, God is not primarily or fundamentally angry at you and your brokenness, because all of us are broken. And how sad that we might come into contact and, and come face to face with our brokenness and believe that God, the creator of the universe, who called all of creation good, would look at our brokenness with hate and wrath rather than love. No, let's get the primary message right that God's fundamental orientation toward you is love. It's sad that we might think or believe that God is so angry at us in our brokenness that he must have his anger toward us appeased through a blood offering. No, let's get it right. God loves you. God loves us. God loves all of humanity so tenaciously that he would absorb the blow of our sin and forgive us. Praise be to God. And finally, if we can understand the true nature of God and his love for us, then we'll be able to accept his forgiveness. If we, can become, if we can come to realize God's love for us, then that opens up our heart, space in our heart, to begin to accept his forgiveness. And maybe even more importantly, forgive ourselves. When I was thinking about putting together a series on forgiveness, I thought, you know, a lot of times when we talk about forgiveness, we just immediately jump to how do we forgive other people? And I thought, I really think we need to begin with understanding, first of all, God's unconditional love and forgiveness for us that then frees up the ability for us to forgive ourselves. If we're gonna forgive others, if we're gonna be a people of forgiveness, I think we first need to learn how to forgive ourselves. Because guess what? 
All of us have done wrong. All of us have messed up. At some point, all of us did something we shouldn't have done, didn't do something we should have, said something we regret and want to take back, or didn't say something we should have. All of us are there. All of us have done wrong. We've harmed people with our words or our actions, and it would be easy. Perhaps it would be the most natural thing to do, to live forever with the guilt of our offenses. But life is not found in the darkness of guilt. Life is found in the light of forgiveness, amen? And I want to say to you, the love and forgiveness of Christ is offered to you today. For God loves you. And I want to ask another important question. As God extends forgiveness to you, will you dare to offer yourself grace and forgiveness? Will you forgive yourself for any wrongs that you've committed? Because before we talk about forgiveness of others, we must embrace God's forgiveness for us. The most tangible way to accept forgiveness is to repent before God and trust that our sin is forgiven by his love and through his grace. And so I wanna lead us to the table today, but I wanna do so by inviting you to pray the prayer of confession. I hope that all of you, I, I, I did not prepare Daniel for the screens, to have this on the screens, but I did print it in here. Thanks be to God. <laughs> so it is, uh, it's in your notes insert uh, on that second page, not the back page, but on that, that second page, uh, right at the bottom in italics called the prayer of confession. And uh, this is a classic prayer of confession uh, from the Book of Common Prayer. We didn't write this or, or make it up or, or edit it. Uh, it is as it appears in the Book of Common Prayer. I believe it has a lot of value for us. And since we're reading it together, uh, the pronouns are plural. We confess. Um, and then I'm gonna invite you as we gather around the Lord's table that if you want to confess and repent before God and receive his forgiveness today, and I'm not, maybe I am talking about salvation. Maybe you need to enter into a relationship with Christ for the very first time. Uh, but maybe there's just something laying heavy on your heart and we need to start by being able to forgive ourselves. Uh, and so we'll do this corporate confession and then I'll invite you into uh, the table. And as we present the elements to you, we're gonna say something a little different to, to really hone in on this. Um, so when you come to the table today, we'll present the elements to you by saying, the body and blood of Christ given for you, you are forgiven and you are loved. And so take the time as you receive the elements to hear those words and let them sink in. We got lots of time. There's not a ton of us here today. <laughs> so come to the table slowly, cautiously, reflectively to hear all of these words. The body and blood of Christ given for you, you are forgiven and you are loved. Let's confess our sins before God together. Uh, if you don't have one, hopefully your neighbor does. It says this, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves.
we are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Let me lead us to the table today. Open our eyes, Lord Jesus, to see you in this bread and in our lives, in our hunger and in our fullness, in our despair and in our hope, in our worship and in our work. Feed us also with bread that is unseen. Open our hearts, Lord, and fill our cups to overflowing. Prepare your table of blessing even in the presence of our enemies. Drench us with compassion for the poor and make us thirsty for justice and liberation for the oppressed. Pour for us the cup of heaven. And so now come to the table, you who are longing to see God's face, you who are weary from the world, you who have fed on the bread of sorrow, you who have quenched your thirst with tears, you who need forgiveness. Come, for the table is ready. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.